and welcome to Stories of Scotland, your midnight moonlit coven of Scottish heritage. I'm Jenny, and you may pop your frog's legs in my cauldron. And I'm Annie, and we have absolutely no frog's legs here, and we have no cauldrons either. Just happy cups of coffee. Hubble bubble, toil, and caffeine. That is something I can get behind, Annie. <laughs> This week on Stories of Scotland, we are exploring the crossroads of mythologies and realities. At this point of overlap, we have legends of fairies, divination and even vampires. It's a time that is associated with both saints and monsters. It is, of course, Halloween. Yes, Halloween is a traditional festival which originated in Scotland. And as you just implied, Jenny... The name Halloween comes from the Christian festival of All Hallow Mass, okay. or All Saints Day. And the Een is simply a Scots way of saying evening. So this would have been a celebration of all the Christian saints. However, the customs of Halloween are associated with a far more ancient festival, that of Samhain. And it's this festival of Samhain that we see so much overlap with our legends and customs many of which we still practice today. Things like guising, which our American friends call trick-or-treating, which is, of course, when bairns disguise themselves in funny little costumes and knock on doors, extorting sweeties. However, children are not dressed in costumes simply to confuse their generous neighbours. Hmm. No. That's why I did it. <laughs> <laughs> the children are rather dressed up to confuse the fairies, mm. who may otherwise snatch them away. For Samhain is the night when the curtain betwixt the land of the supernatural beings and our own fragile earthly plane becomes its thinnest. Ooh. It is practically a net curtain. You can see straight through it. Or like one of those fun beaded ones that you can just swish swash right on through. We're not getting beaded curtains, Jenny. I've already got one for the shower. <laughs> uh-huh. Beaded shower curtain. That's the scariest thing we're going to talk about today. <laughs> Back to Halloween. <laughs> in Gaelic, we call this night Oichehaune. And it's a uh, thanks for the harvest and a welcome to the long nights ahead of us that we expect at this time of year as we enter the dark half of our year. Ah, well, I also read that the veil between the natural and the supernatural world is so thin that they would dress up in order to scare off any ghouls or ghosties or door-to-door salesmen that may try to pass through. Or, to appease these spirits, the kids would disguise themselves as spirits of the dead and request food on behalf of their souls. Yes, um, that's where some of the traditions of the cakes that children used to be given on Halloween were. Mm -hmm. The bannocks, it was a traditional cake to be giving to the souls of your ancestors. Amazing. I actually ate my first bannock um, the other week and it was dry. It was very dry. I put a lot of butter on there and it did improve it. Mm. My ancestors wouldn't have been too appeased with my reaction to it. (laughs) (laughs) Sort of like... Well, bannocks or no bannocks, I prefer fairies over spirits of the dead. Mm. And so does a hundred-year-old man from Elgin in 1849 who wrote... Persons having the misfortune to be born in these degenerate times are painfully ignorant of the least of those joys. The people of those days gone by were never staggered by doubts. Faith in everything, seen and unseen, was the all-pervading sentiment. 
it was well known over Scotland that on Halloween the fairies and other invisible existences were loosened from their bonds and kept their annual jubilee free and elastic as the moonbeams in which they disported their tiny forms. Just imagine it, Jenny. Fairies dancing on moonbeams. And this year it's a full moon which falls on Halloween, so plenty of moonbeams for those fairies to be kaleying on. But back to the reading, Jenny. Oh yeah, sorry. <clears throat> and on these occasions, by virtue of excess of joy, the spiritual world feeling so happy with themselves, determined by showering down favours to the sons of men to make our simple forefathers rejoice also. A ballad composed in those favoured times begins with this announcement. The morrow at evening is Halloween. The fairy court does ride through England, Ireland and fair Scotland through all the world wide. So upon Halloween, our ancient fairies come to explore the whole world. Isn't that quite lovely? It is. As long as they don't bring along their spooky pals. I think the fairies themselves might be the spooky pals that our mothers <laughs> warned us about. <laughs> what if it's actually so it's like fairy Halloween as well and they all get dressed up and come into our world just to scare us and have a laugh? That's what the ghouls are. <laughs> <laughs> Halloween is a traditional festival with its roots deep in Scotland. We know it for carved neeps, duking for apples and spooky guising. But these traditions come from far further back than our own childhoods. Yes, this time has been celebrated as the beginning of winter for thousands of years. We see it as a kind of counterbalance to the 1st of May and the mm. festivals then. Now, Halloween was a time of joy because the harvest has all been gathered in, so there's ample food, and it's a perfect time to gather as a community and light a massive fire and celebrate the heat and the food before the real dark months of winter set in and the darkness really creeps up on us. Mm. During the evening, communities would gather and play lots of games, many of which took advantage of this thinning of the veil, as we call it. Yes, the thinning of the bead curtain, as I call it. <laughs> Looking past our present selves and peering into the future, divining and foretelling the lives to come for the participants. These games were played mainly by the youth of the communities, they would try to divine whether they would be married soon, whether it would be this year or the next year. The colour of their beloved's hair, their favourite food, their shoe size, their thoughts on the latest turnip pulling techniques. Anything that they could divine, they would, Annie. <laughs> well, Jenny, what would some of these favourite future-telling techniques be? Well, Annie, there was shoe tossing. This is where the player would remove their shoe and then lob it over a house and the direction it lands in on the other side, so where the toe is pointing, is the direction in which they would find their love. So if it was pointing towards Cromarty, they'd be on the Black Isle. If it was pointing towards Nairn, they'd be out to the east. If it landed upside down, well this was seen as bad luck in the field of love. And if it didn't land at all, Annie, then you'll be needing a new pair of shoes because it's stuck on the roof. <laughs> And also, good luck finding a partner, because you're not getting anyone with those noodle arms. <laughs> noodle arms, Jenny! 
Maybe they'd have called them wheat arms before they knew what noodles were. <laughs> well, I don't think shoe throwing is for me because I've never been a very strong throw. Well, Annie, there's also the watery eggs technique. Uh, that's not the actual name. Couldn't find a name for it. So that's the name I have given it. This is where the whites of an egg would be dropped into a cool glass of water, but without the yolk coming out of the egg. So you kind of crack it and let the whites eke out. And basically, the number of globules that the egg whites formed into in the glass was the number of children that you would be having. Well, you tried this earlier. How did it go for you? Well, I did try this, but I panicked because my yolk started to creep out the egg and I splashed everything and then it all separated my egg whites and apparently I'm going to be having like 48 children. (laughs) So I better get on that or I'll be (laughs) popping them out till I'm 80. (laughs) Well, I don't think the egg technique sounds very realistic because I always go by what my grandfather would do and he's very thrifty and he'd never waste an egg white in water. Mm. So I refuse to believe that Scots past were just popping their egg whites into water even though we read it in our little history books. That's interesting Annie because I certainly did it and I'm having 43 kids. (laughs) (laughs) Are there any other methods we could try? Well there's also the flaming nuts. This is a fun one Annie. This is when two nuts were placed by the fire with each nut representing two single Pringles in the community. As the fire burned close to these little nuts, people would watch very intently to see what they did. For as the nuts behaved, so would the two people's relationship. Would they flare up together and burn in eternal fiery love? Or would they leap apart from each other, showing that the relationship was doomed to fail? Or worse, would only one catch fire while the other slowly smouldered? The timeless tale of unrequited nut love. I've also heard the flaming nuts done by a blacksmith who could then marry the young couple if their nuts prophesied a fast wedding. Wow, right on it. They are putting trust in those nuts. (laughs) (laughs) You've always got to trust your nuts, Jenny. Unless you're in Vegas. And and apples. Don't forget apples, Jenny. (laughs) Apple duking. How could we forget? There are old accounts of water and apples being used for divination upon Halloween. But over time, this is transformed into a game of great tactical precision and skill. Of all the joys of the historic evening of Halloween, there's none more lively or hilarious than duking for apples. (laughs) And it's still one of my favourite things to do at Halloween. In the light of a blazing bonfire, young people would kneel round an ordinary washing tub which would be filled with water with floating apples on top. And they'd take it in turns to dive in their heads into the tub in the quest of the elusive apples floating about. I always go in so confident, Annie, and end up coming out with a mouthful of some other lassie's hair. That's rule number one of apple digging, Jenny. Always tie up the hair. As the night wore on and the bonfire dwindled, children would dance on the ashes of the once great fire, keeping company with the fairies who would also be dancing round the embers. However, the children had to scuttle home quickly, their hearts beating loudly with fear, because there was a superstition that if the sparks of the bonfire would die away before every child was safely at home, then they would be carried away by fairies into fairyland. So that's why you need a tiny little bit of light on your fire left Mm. until you're safely in your door. But all of these games were the games of children and young adults, 
all eager to enter the adult world of love and marriage and childbearing. And I think it's really telling that this is what they were focused on with their future. This is what they wanted to know. It goes to show how family and community-based society was back then. Um, right now, people will be asking, where am I going to be with my career in five years? <laughs> it's just not quite the same. The apples aren't as predictable. <laughs> <laughs> Still <I'd>... renting. <laughs> I don't know. My egg whites have told me that this podcast is going to get another award, Jenny. So Ooh. we keep <laughs> keep investing your time in this little enterprise right here. Well, we just hit 100,000 downloads, Annie. So I'll take that as award enough. <laughs> I'm proud. I'm proud of us. (laughs) Messaging me at midnight to wake up, Annie. We've hit 100,000 downloads. It refreshes at midnight. (laughs) I was keeping an eye on it. (laughs) Oh, dearie me. But these are just a few games. There are many, many others. They varied from region to region. And honestly, there's just a massive selection of future telling games that were played on Halloween. For Samhain Night was the perfect time to peek into the future. But did any of this actually work, Jenny? Do we have any accounts of someone throwing a shoe, following the direction that it has landed in, and finding the partner of their dreams? Oh, well, of course, Annie, we do. One of the most common of all Halloween divinations was that of the kale picking. Now, what would happen was all those who were anxious to find out about their future love would quietly sneak into a kale patch that was not their own. They had to be very sly and quiet, for if they were caught stealing the kale in the act, then the magic would be broken and the kale would tell nothing but lies. (gasps) Not lying kale. Lying kale. (laughs) (laughs) Not lying to me about all those antioxidants. (laughs) I can hear the salad cackling from the fridge, Annie. (laughs) But if they got away with their freshly picked kale in their hands, then it would tell them very, very specifically of the one they were to marry. Now, how specifically do you mean, Jenny? Very specifically. That's why I said very the first time. (laughs) (laughs) But for an example of this, okay, so a long piece of kale would mean that the person of their dreams is tall. A short bit would mean, well, that they're short. A crooked bit of kale would mean that the person had a crooked temperament. A dirty piece of kale, what do you think that one meant? Um... That they had mucky trousers. Kind of, almost. It would mean that they weren't one for personal hygiene. (laughs) And a piece of kale with lots of dirt clumped around the roots. Well, that can't be a good thing, surely. Uh Uh-uh. Means that they would be wealthy. Big pockets full of soily, soily money. (laughs) (laughs) But what if there's a slug on your kale? Uh, I don't know, probably sluggish in the morning. Not a morning person. That's my prediction on that one. (laughs) But this brings me to the tale of the fisher lass from Skye, whose lover was a sailor. Now one Halloween night he was far away out at sea, and the lass she was half missing him, but also half wondering if he was worth waiting for. At that middle point of a relationship, she went out to collect a piece of kale to see if it would help her settle her mind. Now she went down to the shore and humming a tune from her childhood, picked a piece of kale that she felt most drawn to. And just as she plucked it from the ground, out of thin air, fell a knife. Surprised, she picked it up and examined it. And looking around, she saw no one. So she quickly put it in her pocket and decided to take it home with her, along with her kale. Now upon her sailor's return, she told him of the incident with the kale and carefully admitted the bit about how she was having second thoughts. (laughs) And to his surprise, he told of how, 
On Samhain night, he'd been standing on the bow of his boat, looking to the stars and missing his love. He'd been eating an apple and cutting it with his knife, and as he was thinking of her smile, he accidentally dropped the knife and watched it sink deep into the ocean. Her face turned white and she quickly ran to her room and pulled the knife out of the drawer she'd put it in and lo and behold, it was the very same knife. Do you need any more confirmation that this is the one you're meant to love, Annie? No. And they got married and lived happily ever after. And they did the egg trick, said they were going to have four kids. They had four kids. Science. They didn't do the egg (laughs) trick. That's not in the folklore. (laughs) What better way to set the mood for misty full moon Halloween than to tell one of the spookiest tales in all of Scottish mythology? And not just spooky. This story is tinged with fairy magic, snarling canines' death, and even vampires. Ooh. This is a tale that dates back at least to the 17th century. It takes place on the western isles of Colonsay and Jura. It has been told and retold thousands of times and each storyteller or bard has put their own individual spooky twist on it. And I have no doubt, Jenny, (laughs) darling bard, (laughs) that you are also going to put your own little spooky twist on this story. Oh, just wait. (laughs) (laughs) The tale starts with McPhee of Colonsay, chief of the people who lived on the island, a small and mountainous rock on the west coast of Scotland. The island is shrouded in the supernatural, for it was said that the people of Colonsay were descendants of fairies themselves. And so, McPhee was often called upon by his peers, who got into sticky spots with these tricksy beings. Supernatural or not, he had a penchant for sorting out problems and helping his friends. Now one day he was out hunting in his forests. It had been a frustrating day and he hadn't had any luck. That is until, on his way home he came across a group of men huddled around a fire. He rode over and dismounted. But before he was amongst them, an old, grey-haired man said, McPhee, come forward. And so he did. He entered their circle and found that they were surrounding a dog and her litter of puppies, the likes of which he had never seen before. And one jet-black puppy in particular caught his eye and held it as if for an eternity. This dog will be my own, he said. And the old man said, "Uh, You'll get your choice of pups, but you'll no have that one. I will take no dog but this one, McPhee said, for he knew there was something special about the hound. Since you're resolved to have it, you may. But know this, it will never do you any day's service but one. McPhee nodded and took the dog. As he walked away, the old man shouted shakily into the air, Never a day's service but one, McPhee. The dog grew into the finest specimen anyone had ever seen. It captivated those who met it. Until, that is, they asked it to do something. Anything. Even replied to its name. For the black dog was as dismissive as a Tory of school lunches for hungry kids. And it would simply turn its back and walk away. Oh, Jenny, that's dreadful. Both the disobedient dog and the Tories' current policy on (laughs) preventing giving free school lunches to hungry children. Ah, they would say to him, you should just kill that thing. It's not worth the food you feed it. 
but McPhee would always smile lightly and say, Ah, let it be. The black dog's day is yet to come. It feels like it's a cat in a dog's body. (laughs) Just not listening to anything anyone has to say to it. Just doing its own thing. But McPhee seems quite happy with his lazy dog. He listened to the old man's warning and instead of being annoyed by the dog, he seems to be almost fond of it. Well, he did get warned, you know, like if someone's going to be like, that car's not going to drive apart from a day, you can't get angry if your car doesn't drive apart from a day. (laughs) (laughs) They told you the truth. (laughs) But one day, years later, when the dog was quite infamous for its lackadaisical attitude towards life, A group of 16 men from another island came to ask McPhee if he'd accompany them for a hunt on Jura. Jura is another island, the perfect place for hunting red and roe deer. A boat was prepared and each of the men called on the big black dog to join them. And each time the dog would amble to the door and sniff the air and then turn its back inside. Shoot it, they'd cry. What a waste of time that dog is. Ugh. McPhee would say, let it be, the black dog's day is yet to come. The men went to board the boat, but the weather had turned, and the trip had to be postponed. The next day, all a bit more hungover than the last, the men prepared the boat, and each called the dog to join, but once more, it would go to the door, lift its nose to the wind, and retreat. Again, calls to shoot the beautiful beast rung out, and again McPhee said, Ah, let it be, the black dog's day is yet to come. Again, the weather turned and the trip was postponed. Now on the third day, it was beautiful and calm. A light spring breeze was floating over the islands. Again, the boat was prepared. Again, the dog was called. And again, it did not come. But just as the boat was launching... Out of the forest came the big black dog, bounding with such elegance that the men fell speechless as they turned to watch it. It leaped from the pier and landed as though it were a leaf floating from a tree amongst the men. Ah, it appears the black dog's day is drawing near us, said McPhee. Well, all the men cheered and they set off for their hunt. Well, do you think the dog has a diary? Oh, for sure it's got a diary. And that day, it had a big muddy paw print on it. (laughs) (laughs) And every other day, it was just blank paper. (laughs) But after the men had finished their day's hunt, they retreated to spend the night in a well-known cave on the island. It was spacious and comfortable for the 17th century cave standards, and it even had a beaded curtain at the door. It did not have a beaded curtain. That's my own spooky spin, Annie. (laughs) (laughs) There's no beaded curtains in any Scottish caves that I'm yet to discover. Okay, but this one did have a nightlight in it, for there was a hole in the roof just big enough to squeeze a man through, and on this night, it framed the full moon perfectly. As they lay around the fire, each of the men in turn lamented over their lack of female companionship. Oh, if only I had a sweetheart to dance with. But McPhee said, Ah, well, I prefer that my wife should be in her own house. It is enough to be here by myself tonight. As soon as all the men were finished woefully wishing for some women, what do you know? Sixteen beautiful maidens, all dressed in green, enter the cave, each taking the hand of one of the men and leading him in a dance. But, as McPhee had not wished for one, he and his big black dog were left to watch. However, as the dancing became faster, the light became darker, 
and the faster they spun, the darker it got, until the men were all but blurs and the light was gone. <gasps> one by one, McPhee heard a cry of pain from each of his companions, accompanied by the sound of vicious slurping, as if they were drinking an ancient slushy. That's my own spin. In terror and fear, McPhee called out to them, but no one replied. And he felt the presence of the sixteen dancing maidens turn upon him. But here, the big black dog jumped to its haunches, growling and snarling, barking and snapping into the darkness. And all of a sudden, it tore out of the cave, chasing the sixteen evil maidens away. McPhee sat in terror and shock, until finally the sun began to rise. As it did, light began to enter the cave once more, and the big black dog slowly padded back in. Exhausted and clearly injured, it lay down at his feet, and with a whimper, died by his loyal master. McPhee soon saw what he had feared was true, for each of his companions lay lifeless, the husks of their former selves, all the blood drained from them, like big raisins. <laughs> McPhee was the only survivor. He solemnly made his way back to the boat and sailed alone without man or dog to his island. When the locals rushed to welcome him back and see what had happened, all he could tell them was, I, the big black dog, had its day. Wow, Jenny, the big black dog certainly had its day. Yeah, what a day it was. And there's a lesson to be learnt here, and it's never trust any character in Scottish folklore who is dressed in green. Ah. Because green is the colour of fairies, mm -hmm. and green is always going to get you trapped somewhere for a hundred years, mm. or... Sucked dry like a wee raisin. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but these mysterious dancing, blood-draining women could have been the Balvinshi. Now, these were fairy witches who would disguise themselves as beautiful women to lure men in. Mm. They'd then use their powers to seduce the men, but when they least expected it, unleashed their long nails, which transformed into deadly talons to cut the victims' throats and drink their blood. <sighs> How gruesome. Our very own Highland vampires. It seems that McPhee had a sixth sense about the dog as a puppy, though, for even though he knew it would only serve him for one day, he must have known that day would be very important indeed. It would have been really annoying if one day he just, without realising, asked it for his slippers and it got his slippers. And then it was like, all right, that's me done for my life. Thank you, buddy. I'll have some more food, please. No, I will not give you my paw. Yes, it definitely seems there was something fey about the circumstances in which he got the dog and the dog itself. It all seems a little bit too much of a prophecy mm -hmm. and certainly a little bit magical. Now, McPhee was said to understand the world of fairies, so perhaps he could read more into the situation occurring than your regular dog owner. What do you think the moral of the story of this one is, Annie? That a big black dog is for life, not just for one day? <laughs> I think this is a tale of patience, loyalty, precaution, and trusting your instincts as well. 
I I quite like this story because it shows the importance of loyalty towards nature and towards your pets and the animals in your life. Because this story is really about an owner's responsibility towards their pet. He spends the dog's whole life caring for it and getting a dog that doesn't care about him that much at all right until it uses its entire life saving him mm. which is powerful it is very heroic in a one and done sort of way <laughs> it was simply saving all its magical dog energy to fight away the Bav and she mm. and of course what I got from this mainly was to never trust an ancient slushy <laughs> 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 And as well, the saying, the black dog's day will come yet, is a Gallic proverb that is derived from this tale. It means that even those who are disliked or seemingly useless will have their moment to prove their service, Jenny. Oh, I've still got time. (laughs) (laughs) So it's also a moralistic tale of just not writing people off completely and believing that everyone has their moment to shine. Aw, an interesting offshoot that I found while researching this episode is that black dogs are far less likely to be adopted in shelters for no reason other than the fact that they've got black coats, which is really sad. So if you're out there thinking of adopting a dog, why not consider the big black one you see? You never know. It may save you from a pack of bloodthirsty Highland vampire fairy women one day. Also, if you do actually end up adopting a big black dog, send us a picture. That would be my dream. Thank you. Actually, even if you just have a black dog, just send us a picture. That would make us so happy. Yes. Actually, any picture of any dog (laughs) that you have would be greatly appreciated in these dark and turbulent times. (laughs) I especially like it when dogs wear kerchiefs around their neck. Mm -hmm. Or tiny little hats. Right. Hubble, bubble, toil and carving a turnip. Halloween is upon us, Annie. Shall we go and throw some shoes over the house and see in which direction our true loves lie? Well, Jenny, hopefully they'll point back at the house as both our partners live with us. That could (laughs) prove awkward at the dinner table, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) But let's finish on an adorable poem from the Fife Herald in 1870 which laments the days of Halloween past, when witches and fairies were still a popular belief. Hags and witches grim and old, dancing o'er the churchyard mould, mixing in some loathsome cell, deadly drugs to form a spell. Thrice a cauldron circling round are no longer to be found, or amid a burning pyre, Doomed for witchcraft to expire. Those that hellish friends obey, Bedlam's vile, are well away. But we miss the fairy race, Full of merriment and grace, Cavorting on summer eves, Among the forest's fluttering leaves, Beneath the starry sheen, Holding court on Halloween. Excellent. Thank you all so much for listening to this spooky episode of Stories of Scotland. 
we have loved investigating the weird and wonderful world of Samhain season and hope you've all enjoyed the journey. If you did, then be sure to leave us a terrifying five-star rating Ah! and a review on whichever platform you've listened on. It really helps other people to find our strange and mystifying podcast and it brings so much joy to our otherwise shoe-tossing lives. (laughs) And a warm welcome to Kat and Laura for joining our Patreon family. I have spent the last two weeks in Orkney and will be uploading lots of little tidbits and fun stories, mythology and geology and lots of things that I learned about the islands while I was there. If you'd like to hear these while also supporting Annie and I as we research, write and record this podcast, then you can go over to www.patreon.com slash stories of Scotland and subscribe to our Patreon. Yeah, a massive thank you to our entire Patreon family. It's so kind that people are supporting us all over the world. I still find it very surprising, but very flattering. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you all so much. Slangeva. Slangeva.